You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It's Thursday, the 27th of July. News by the Daily Mirror. David Yates joins me, and we have the final field for the King George. And it's not what we expected in the main because we now know that Desert Crown will not run in the race. Yet another key engagement for the horse has um, has unfortunately he's been ruled out of. It's a great shame for the race. He's got a, a recent leg infection. He'll now, David Yates, be aimed at York and the Judmont International. Ah, what a shame. What a shame indeed, Tom. Um, we know all about uh, Desert Crown's travails of the past. Of course, we didn't see him again in 2022 after his victory in the Derby, a memorable success at Epsom in June of last year. He was beaten by Hookham, of course, in the Brigadier Gerard Stakes at Sandown in May on his return. Then there was that sparkling gallop, uh, which triggered a gamble for the Prince of Wales' Stakes at Royal Ascot, where he was due to be ridden by Frankie de Tory. A late setback ruled Desert Ground out of the Royal Fixture. But then everything back on track, of course, for the King George. William Buick was due to uh, partner Desert Crown. This time, it's not a, a mechanical issue in terms of a, a a muscle or something like that. It is an infection in a leg. And so they say it's not too serious and that we'll see Desert Crown in the Jubmont International at York next month. I, I really hope we do, Tom, because um, I've said a couple of times on the Nick Light Daily that I think that we're we're if we're not in the la- last chance saloon now, then we're we're very close to it. And if we don't see uh, Desert Crown at York, I wonder if we'll see him again. It's desperately disappointing news for the race because we've been saying for the last week or so how this is shaping up into a really stellar renewal of the King George. And I think that still applies. We've still got 11 of them. Obviously, we don't have Desert Crown. We don't have Adelaide River. We don't have Sim Camille. And Broom is also missing. But uh, we've got so much quality among the 11 there. But obviously, it's very disappointing that we don't have Desert Crown. Just one other thing that's worth mentioning, Tom. Spoke to Rafe Beckett yesterday. He said that Westover would be declared for the race, as, of course, he has been. He said that if it turns soft, then they might be inclined to think again. He said if it's going to be as they say it is, uh, I think up to good to soft, then Westover would take his chance. But it's worth pointing out that yesterday, Chris Dickles was predicting between 7 and 15 millimetres of rain, Wednesday into Thursday. And this morning, they've reported that they've had 17. So it is a little bit more uh, than they've had. We'll just have to see what happens in the next couple of days before the King George. But that's a a, a word of warning from Rafe Beckett that uh, if the ground were to turn soft, then Westover would look elsewhere. Well, we're already soft, good to soft in places. So that's that's not really a, a, a great boost for his chances of, of running. I wonder if we might look back on this and if, if Desert Crown does rock up at, at, at York um, as a a bit of a blessing in disguise that he misses a real test on uh, over a mile and a half on, on testing ground. But I, I guess that's it, isn't it? There might be some connections thinking who, who have declared their horses thinking, 
well, hang on. If if we if we get genuinely soft ground or worse, um, do we actually want to run? But th- this is a this is an all age mile and a half group one that really deserves everything to to turn up, and, and we hope they do. Do we think Rodin's presence in the race is is under question at all, Dave? Would you be concerned well, about that? I wouldn't really. I mean, I think that just reading between the lines of what uh, Chris Stickles said and looking at the forecast, I think, until Saturday now, then once, I think once this band of rain goes through, I think that this is about as soft as it's going to get, I believe, so that there will be, I think, a little bit of rain forecast in the run-up uh, from now until Saturday afternoon, but it, it it won't be enough to soften the ground still further. So I think that it will dry out a little bit. We might be looking at the, the dead side of good. Well, August Rodin, yes, they were... They were in two minds about running him in the futurity at Doncaster last October. That was heavy ground at Doncaster in October. That's a big shift, isn't it? From soft, good to soft ground at Ascot at the end of July. Um, I think they would be two very different cats indeed. So I'd be very surprised. I'd be disappointed if August Rodin were not to take his chance on ground that's on uh, the dead side of good. I think we'll be okay there. And I hope we'll be okay with Westover too, because at least... My reading of the situation, and I, I'm I'm not a weatherman, but my reading of the situation is that uh, soft, good to soft as it is today, is probably about as uh, soft as we're going to get before uh, drying out into the weekend. Well, Power Driver, as we know, is back to defend his crown, and one of the Lapile members is Roger Devlin, who who joins me now. Um, Roger, the the journey continues. Exciting stuff. Uh, yeah, look, we've been incredibly fortunate, um, and um, I think he goes with every chance to defend his crown on Saturday, but clearly against a very deep field. Just take me back twelve months ago, and the and the sort of all the build up to the race, and um, and then obviously the aftermath when he won. Yeah, look, I think he was. Something of a forgotten horse, wasn't he? Really, I mean, at one point, I think he touched thirty-three to one. He went off at eighteens. Um, all the hype was about Emily Upjohn and Westover, who I think he faces again, who are very exciting three-year-olds at the time. Um, you know, he's always performed well at Ascot. He's 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 won uh, the King Edward Seventh as a three-year-old. Uh, he won the Hardwick um, a, a, a month ago. Uh, he's absolutely not ground dependent. Um, you know, we uh, it, it probably feels like it might be good, good to soft on Saturday, but uh, he won first time out on a road in Salisbury and he's won on heavy ground as well. So um, um, we're, we're, we're I, I, would, I would say that we're hopeful rather than confident because clearly it's um, uh, it's it's a 15 strong field and um, some of the finest middle distance horses in Europe. Were you surprised with, with what he managed to do last time off a break? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, William had managed our expectations quite well. I mean, I, I, I don't think he was any more than, you know, 90% fit. Um, I, I think I never quite understand the, the, the bounce factor, as it were, you know, when you run the second time after a long break. Um, but... Um, We'd absolutely be optimistic. He'll he'll give of his very best. He had a, a good race course gallop at Newbury a week ago, and um, 
uh, as I say, you know, the, the mood in the camp, I think, is, is, is very hopeful. Whatever happens on, on Saturday, Roger, just, I don't know if you can sum up just how much joy the horse has brought you, but, but, but give it a go. Well, look, I, 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 I think it's, it, it's not just been a, a, a fantastic journey for the owners. I think um, all the credit goes down to William and the team of, of Jetta and Babu who look after him every day. Um, he's the first Group One winner for William, you know, who's been grafting away in the in the sport for crikey forty years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we're truly delighted for for everybody at Linkslade and Lambourne um, for the success. And, um, and 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 I think what's really gratifying is, you know, if you're around racing, you see how pleased other trainers are to celebrate William's success. Um, so I, I think, you know, all, all the credit is, is down to, to, to the team at Linkslade and, and we simply pay the bills. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, I think it, it's, it's been a joy as well for, you know, ITV Racing have been very generous in their uh, coverage. He's become something of the people's horse. I mean, we all know that Coolmore and Godolphin have, have put... Um, great investment into the sport and we should be eternally grateful for that but I think it is it is very nice to see that you know you can risk five grand on a cover from Harbour Watch and um, and still dine at the top table uh, I mean I you know look to give the soccer analogy um, you know people probably possibly do get a bit bored with Man City winning everything and and they take some pleasure in Leicester winning the Premier League as they did a few years ago and, and, and this is probably the racing equivalent of that Roger, great to chat. Good luck on Saturday. Thank you very much. Okay, to America now and to, uh, well, a a story which is, I suppose, always bubbling under the surface, but um, maybe hasn't recently been in the the forefront of our minds, but um, is very much back again with the news that trainer Jason Service, of course, trainer of um, the the winner a few years back of the, the Saudi Cup, uh, maximum security has been handed a four-year sentence. Um, Pat Cummings from the Thoroughbred Ideas Foundation joins me now to, to just tell us a, a little bit more. Um, where are we, Pat, off the back of this? Well, this pretty much wraps it up, Tom. Uh, and I think it's it's notable a four-year prison sentence as opposed to uh, a suspension or anything of the sort of that. Uh, it has been a, uh, a wholesale win for the uh, U.S. government in, in its case against really 30 defendants uh, across maybe four total cases from the indictments that uh, were handed down in March of 2020. So we're, we're talking, um, you know, we're pushing into the four and a half year range territory um, for for the entire case in Jason Service, the trainer of maximum security and many other stakes winners over the years was the last to plead guilty and, and the last to be sentenced and it happened today in a New York court. Uh, it is kind of extraordinary to just to sort of sit back from afar and, and see a... A sixty-year, sixty-six-year-old trainer of horses being sentenced to to four years in prison uh, for for yeah. the for these for these doping misdemeanors. How, how is it sort of sitting in America, or or, or was this expected? Well, it was expected considering the degree to which all of the previous defendants had been sentenced. I think the, the jail terms had basically ranged from the uh, roughly one and a half years up into the 11-year uh, time range. Now, the 11-year time range was, was Seth Fishman, a veterinarian, uh, who was um, convicted. He's, he's really the only one who went to trial. 
Uh, in this case, everyone else essentially pled guilty, so they, they ended up getting reduced sentences as a result of those those pleas with the federal government. Um, and so the, the expectation has been met here. And uh, it, the coverage that this has received, it, it's tough because uh, racing journalists typically do not find themselves covering court stories. And if you don't cover it, I don't think anyone else necessarily will. But in the, the coverage that we have seen, um, you know, Bill Finley from Thoroughbred Daily News, I think, captured some really incredible words uh, from Jason Service in his uh, dialogue today where he said, quote, no words can explain how remorseful and sorry I am over the decisions I've made and the people I've let down. I will live with this the rest of my life. and I'm truly sorry, and I throw myself at the mercy of the court. But uh, the judge did not uh, leave uh, service with any mercy, in fact, and, and did sentence him to the maximum four years based on the plea agreement. She could have given him less uh, time in jail, but but did not. He, he faced actually uh, up to 25 years in prison prior to the, the plea deal with the federal government. I remember doing a, a podcast on, on Fishman and, and, and his case. Uh, and I think we call it the tip of the iceberg. Are, are we, are we some somewhere near the base of it now, Pat? Is is this about it? Well, yes, we are for this case. But I can tell you, Tom, that generally speaking, um, I think many American racing participants uh, up and down the sport have been a little frustrated that more did not come out of this case. There were never more defendants charged. And relatively little information came out. Now, there was a trickle of information from last week where prior to the sentencing hearing, some documentation was released, um, transcripts uh, showing some of the dialogue between, uh, that was caught on wire tapes between uh, trainer Jason Service and trainer Jorge Navarro, who were really sort of the, the biggest uh, thoroughbred trainer names tied up in the entire, in the entire case. Uh, and there was a, you know, a, a modicum of, of new information that, that, that came out there, but it was really just going to the degree at which this had all spread. Uh, but, but some frustration, I think, that maybe more was not uncovered over these intervening years. Of course, the greatest potential outcome here, uh, I think we could point to, is the creation of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority which at the time that this indictment was handed down, right as COVID was, was taking hold in America, uh, the authority did not exist. It was a, a basically just an idea that had been batted around Congress for the best part of six, seven years and, and did not have a whole lot of momentum. So this case, um, interestingly, uh, you know, I think was probably a, a tremendous inspiration uh, for getting some parties on side to support the authority and to start moving forward in that direction. And while there are plenty of ongoing uh, court cases uh, studying the constitutionality of the authority and how it's been established, I think everyone agrees that uh, the sport does need some uh, extra oversight, and in this case, I think, was the impetus for it. And finally, where does this leave us with the Saudi Cup purse off the back of Maximum Security's win uh, back in, in 2019? Do we... Do we expect now a line to be drawn under this and, and the, the winning money to be given to the second? Or do we still need more in relation to the horse itself, maximum security, and, and whether or not surfaces misdemeanors accounted for that horse's performances? 
It's an open question to this point, Tom, and, and an interesting one at that, because, of course, maximum security was not believed to have actually tested positive for banned substances in the Saudi Cup itself, and yet that purse has still been held up, and you know, at this point, considering that the uh, American government is, is sending Jason's service off to prison here shortly, um, that, that should be the closest sign that something finally occurs with, with the money that was won from that race. Um, separately, though, um, you know, there, there was, in those, in those documents that were released just a week or so ago, uh, Maximum Security's part owner at the time, Gary West, uh, was very clear in his dialogue with, with the service, suggesting, look, this race in Saudi, this is different. Uh, I don't want, you know, make sure you take every step possible to ensure that, that there is nothing in his system. And at that time, Jason Service acknowledged that he had never treated maximum security with any uh, adulterated substances, which does not necessarily seem to be uh, in touch with, with the truth as it has come out in this case. And I knew when I said 2019, it didn't feel right because it was 2020. Pat, lovely stuff. All, all the best. Thanks ever so much. Thanks, Tom. Dave, news that two riders based in the UK are going to head abroad, uh, one to Saudi Arabia. Let's start with Andrea Adzani, who is off to Hong Kong pretty soon too. Yes, that's right. He's going to leave after the Ebor meeting next month at York. Um, he's 32, Andrea Adzani. He he told our own John Lees, the, the uh, Daily Mirror's John Lees, yesterday that um, he thought that the time was right for this opportunity. He said it's an opportunity that came along at the right time. It hasn't been an easy decision, but I came to the conclusion that I'm at the stage of my career where Hong Kong could be the next step. England isn't getting any easier. I'm 32 now and I'm going to move and try my luck in Hong Kong. I have a six-month contract and I hope to do well enough to be able to extend it. Um, obviously, some uh, some big winners among the nearly 1,200 victories that Andrea Atzani, Sardinian-born, uh, as we know, has um, achieved in Britain, uh, notably two St. Ledger's, Kingston Hill in 2014 and Simple Verse the following year. A King George, of course, topically uh, aboard Postponed in 2015. Several other Group 1s, including uh, two Goodwood Cups aboard Stradivarius when uh, I think that was before uh, Frankie de Torres linked with the horse wasn't it or, or was was Frankie banned for one of them in any case he, um, couldn't, he couldn't yes he yeah there was the incident that he couldn't ride Frankie I can't remember why but then um, but Bjorn put put Andrea on yeah that's right so it, you can you can understand uh, the thinking behind this move Tom can't you at 32 um Andrea at saying he's still got an awful lot more to offer Remember, of course, that he was the retained jockey to postpone's owner, Sheikh Mohammed Obeid, for many years. Uh, that link ended in September last year. And we know that the life of a jockey, if you don't have a big name retainer in terms of a stable or an owner, it's a lot of hard yakka, isn't it? And Hong Kong will um, involve considerably less. Hard yakka at the the, uh, the a couple of meetings a week that they have 
And also, we know that the prize money there is very good. Just to illustrate that, Sylvester D'Souza, of course, uh, who is now serving a ban for betting, that was handed down in May. But in the first five months at uh, riding in Hong Kong, he'd ridden 45 winners and had earned 7.7 million sterling in prize money. So that gives you an idea of uh, the disparity in prize money between uh, Great Britain and Hong Kong. So I'm sure it'll be very lucrative and I'm sure equally that Andrea Atsaini will do very well then. And he's been a pleasure to deal with over the years and we wish him the best of luck. And whether or not Mbappe is going to Saudi Arabia... I don't know, but Pat Cosgrave is. And I suppose this is really the the first um, UK-based rider, or certainly UK-based in the summer. Obviously, Pat um, has ridden for many years out in the Middle East, mainly in in Dubai over the winter. But but to go for a a large chunk of the the UK main flat turf season and, 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 and head to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, absolutely. Pat Cosgrave is 41. Um, as we know, he had a, a, a spell riding. He was pretty much the, the go-to guy uh, for William Haggis a few seasons ago. Um, that has dried up in the last couple of years. And he's now been offered a contract with um, Prince Saud bin Salman Abdulaziz. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, who won the Saudi Cup last year? So yeah, as you right, as you rightly say, everyone seems to be going uh, to Saudi Arabia these days. Jordan Henderson, possibly Kylian Mbappe, Cristiano Ronaldo is there, as we know, and we can add to that list Pat Cosgrave. He said, "I thought about it for a little while and decided it was a good thing to do. The racing, as well as other sports in Saudi, seem to be getting bigger and better and bigger, bigger and better every day, and it's an exciting time to be involved. So we wish him well too. So yeah, two pretty high-profile names who are going to pastures new. So yes, as discussed yesterday, it looks as though uh, the French horse isn't going to run sadly in the King George. Was jocked up with uh, Christophe Soumier on board. He joins me now to so- talk about something. A little bit different. Um, pony racing in France and a bit of a new venture that um, Christophe is setting up. So, uh, Christophe, welcome along. Tell me more. Hi, hello. Um, yeah, listen, uh, I start from there. Uh, in Belgium, uh, pony races uh, went really popular uh, 30 and 40 years ago. Um, since the uh, year 2000, the racing in Belgium is going uh, lower and lower uh, and nearly stops. Uh, and the pony races uh, are very uh, small right now. Um, when I came to France, I saw uh, just a few pony races in uh, west of France, uh, but never around Paris or in other you know, areas in France. So I was quite a bit uh, surprised because it's a real um, country for horses and, uh, and racing especially. But I didn't saw any uh, pony races like uh, I was hoping for, for the kids. So my whole uh, career, um, I never, uh, yeah, have the feeling that uh, it was going to to be something uh, important. And uh, the last few years, France Gallop and uh, a few people like uh, Cecile Madame, they opened up uh, pony races quite a lot. And uh, we have now around uh, yeah 200 kids riding in races in France. Um, it's probably uh, 10 times more than what it was uh, five, six years ago. Um, Unfortunately, there is not enough ponies. Uh, there is enough kids right now. But my last son, uh, Robin, he's six years old now, and he started last year doing some um, 
pony races with some Shetlands. And for me, it was quite difficult to find a nice one for him. Uh, so I was trying to rent or, or borrow a few, and it never worked out well. So I was just looking if he was really interested in it. And uh, when I saw he wants to ride uh, nearly every day, I tried to look to find a nice pony for him. And uh, when I saw um, what's going on here in France, uh, especially about the prices and uh, the nice pony there was nothing uh, so I had to find a few ponies in the UK unfortunately with the Brexit and everything it's quite expensive and also difficult to uh, to transport over here so I found some in Belgium uh, in uh, Netherlands and Spain Italy um, to try to uh, yeah to, to make my uh, kids riding a bit and also some other kids because for me it's important to uh, to find some new uh, young uh, talents uh, riding uh, and starting with ponies. Uh, but yeah, most of them doesn't have the place to, to keep the ponies and they have uh, not even the, um, the money or the parents to, to buy them and, and look after them quite well. So my first idea was doing that, uh, helping a few kids uh, around us. Um, and uh, since two months now we're starting that, um, some uh, people asking me if I can uh, do organize some pony races um, in Normandy uh, around Deauville. So I create a, a new association for pony races and uh, we are starting tomorrow our first uh, pony race meeting. Hmm. Uh, we're going to have four races so with 35 runners. So that's going to be good. And we have eight runners running tomorrow. Um, two is going to be riding by my two uh, stunts and all the rest I will uh, uh, borrow the, the ponies to some kids that uh, I know and some kids that came from outside and tried the ponies last week. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, it's uh, important to open up uh, our our sport uh, to the outside. Um, and it's really difficult when uh, yeah uh, people doesn't know how to do and looking after the, the pony quite well. So now we are yeah, building up something uh, and trying to uh, arrive in a very uh, soon future. Uh, with a small academy and school um, for kids and ponies only, and um, that on a long-term plan, it will we will have a school and everything. But at the moment, we're going to do some uh, um, summer camps and uh, some stages uh, to make the kids improve and learning them how to look after the ponies. And after each uh, camps, uh, the last day, we're going to organize some uh, pony races and. Um, and the kids that come to the to the camp will ride uh, the ponies that we have uh, in our stables. So right now I'm nearly close from 20 ponies, and I think next year we're gonna have between 40 and 60. So that means that we can uh, that we will have probably between 20 and 30 kids uh, when they will come uh, to to learn with us. So this so let me iron a few things out here. First of all, we're recording on. Uh, on Wednesday so when you say tomorrow um, so it, it's Thursday this is all happening that this is when the the, the yeah. podcast is going out when it's starting um, th- this so the first thing I'm thinking is the amount of ponies you're talking this sounds expensive it sounds quite a personal cost to you um, but I but I guess that is that how it is and 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 this is your ambition is it to, to provide opportunities for, for for young kids that you know and that you don't know to, to get on some some half decent ponies yeah, so to start, for sure, I have to invest by myself, and uh, I'm lucky because the horses give me so much uh, all, 
around my racing career and um, and starting with the ponies when I was a kid. I think if I have the chance to do what I do today and people think it's just talent and I don't think it's talent, it's the way how to learn it and we do a re- very special sport and I think if you don't start very early and if you not become a real passionate, it's very difficult to arrive around 13 or 14 years old, uh, never ride a, a horse in your life and starting in the in the racing industry. Um, so a few people can do it, uh, they are really lucky, but globally uh, we have a big problem here in France and I think it's the same thing in UK, there is not enough uh, people to walk in uh, our stables anymore mm. and uh, it's very difficult to recruit so a lot of people now come from overseas mm. but uh, I'm sure uh, we need to start from the from the roof um, and just young kids uh, really liking uh, staying outside in a natural place and uh, learning how to, to love and look after the, the animals they can really uh, I think become uh, great riders and uh, and great people for the the future of our just not our sport but if they want to work in any racing uh, horse industry uh, whatever they want to do I want really to see uh, the kids doing a lot of different stuff with the ponies uh, jumping dressage doing horse ball Uh, we do a lot of trails as well um, because I want nice ponies with good kids on and uh, more you try uh, more you find nice ponies but for sure they're all different like the kids so we need to learn now how to do it's on my personal cost right now uh, but we're gonna have a few helps uh, I have a few breeders owners and also the the government uh, and the French Federation of uh, Christian here in France that will uh, help us to uh, to create a few uh, of the, the nice things we want to do uh, soon. But uh, yeah, it starts for myself, but uh, soon it's going to be a more important uh, um, thing. And uh, yeah, we do it not to earn money, but just to make sure that all the kids learn later on will uh, will uh, yeah lo- love what we do and uh, try to make them become in love with uh, our sports and even to to teach the parents how, uh, how we do and uh, maybe it can give them also some ideas for, for, for them uh, to, to go forward with that. It sounds really exciting. It sounds a really good thing to do and um, I wish you all the best. Good luck. Thank you so much. Now, you may have seen a story on the Racing Post by Jonathan Harding on Ed Barrett, a former point-to-point jockey, with a rather inspirational story. Jonathan's with me. Uh, tell me more. Yeah, morning, Tom. Exactly that, an inspirational recovery. So about eight years ago, Ed Barrett had a fall in a point-to-point at Upcock Cross in Devon. You might remember some reporting from the time. And he was essentially paralysed from the neck down. The outlook was that he might not be able to walk again, but after 10 months of painstaking recovery at uh, Dereford Hospital in Plymouth, at a spinal unit, and then at the IGF's Oaksey House, he returned home, was able to walk a very short distance on crutches. And for most people, you might think that that was a very good result given the situation he was in. But Ed being Ed, and, uh, and I hope it comes across in the interview, he's very determined individual as many jockeys are he basically has taught himself to walk greater distances on crutches he did a sponsored walk of the an unaided walk of the Newbury parade ring without crutches in 2018 which was in itself a remarkable achievement and next month he is going to walk up Mount Snowdon with with crutches with special um, carbon fiber leg splints 
and he's raising funds for um, a couple of charities by doing that. So a remarkable individual and a remarkable recovery he's made. Just tell me the the impact on on you having a chat with Ed and, and him taking you through everything he's been through and what he's planning on doing. I mean, it's just it's impossible not to be moved by it. You naturally empathise with people and you go into an interview like that and you think, you know, we are raking over a fairly traumatic period of his life, but he very quickly put me at ease, actually. It's often the other way around when you're interviewing, you're trying to put them at ease, but there was no need really to tiptoe around the issue at all. He spoke very candidly about his story, gave me all the details, all the complete rundown of where he, how he's got from lying on the floor at a point to point to preparing himself with training walks to climb up Mount Snowden. It was just an absolute joy to speak with him. And and hopefully that comes across in the piece, just how far he's come in, in a relatively, for an injury like his, short amount of time. Well, Ed is with me now. Um, Ed, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading Jonathan's article. Just um, go on, just give us a, a bit of background then on, on yourself and, and why you're doing this challenge. So I was point-to-point jockey and... Um, Obviously, I had a fall back in 2015, um, and it's been a long, long, long road to recovery, and um, I'm at a point now in my recovery where I'm able to take on, try and take on a mountain, and uh, we'll see We'll see how we get on. Um, it's only 10 days' time, so it's come around pretty quick, um, but yeah, looking forward to it as well. How much can you prepare for something like this? Well, I've prepared as best I can. I obviously it's a bit unknown because I've not I've not done the this distance before or this sort of or the gradient before, and it's 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 not only um, walking up the mountain that I have to contend with. Obviously, with a complete spinal cord injury, there's I have a lot of other challenges that challenges that go with it going up the mountain. So um, um, it's a lot to take on, but. Um, that's why it's a challenge it has to be um it has to be challenging and um yeah we'll, we'll just we'll just see how it goes do you think ed that this sort of thing was naturally inbuilt within you you were always the type of person that if you were to find yourself in such a position was <coughs> excuse me going to go on and, and take on something like this or or do you think this 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 type of injury gives people the impetus to go and, and really challenge themselves? I think it's sort of, sort of thrust upon you, really. You don't really have a choice. Once it's happened to you, it's happened to you, this type of injury. And you can either sink or swim with it. And um, it is a process. It takes a long time to get to, to my point. I've been through a, you know, a lot, of, lot of lows, but I've also met some really incredible people um do i think it's in me um i don't know i i um i've always it sounds probably a bit big-headed but i've always felt that i'll try and do something good in my life if that Mm. makes sense i've always had that feeling where i i'd like to you know i thought i was going to be a fairly successful jockey and that that didn't pan out and i've gone down a different path now and i'm enjoying um I'm enjoying doing these types of challenges, to be honest. I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult. But um, and during it, I'll be thinking, "What the hell am I doing? Climbing the mountain, and it's bloody painful." And 
I'll be in agony the, the days afterwards. But then you forget about the pain once you've you've achieved these things, and you feel you feel good about yourself. So that that's why I do it. I, you know, it's great it's great to do it for charity and everything like that. But I I do it for myself at the end of the day because I want to have a purpose and I want and I want to take these things on. Who's it for, Ed, and how can people contribute and follow your progress? So it's for the Injured Jockeys Fund, who've massively supported me since my injury, and uh, it's for the Air Ambulance. Um, not not everyone's into racing, so I thought that would be a good one to do it with because you never know when you need the Air Ambulance. So I've done it for those two charities. There's a, a Just Giving link, and you can either choose which which you want to to donate towards either the IGF or the ambulance okay we're gonna get um we'll get that link um tweeted out in the show notes and on our twitter page as well ed we wish you all the best come back safe and try and enjoy it thanks tom thanks very much for having me on Uh, dave some news on a bookmaker bank accounts and that is that it's been described as a scandal was by an mp uh, yesterday or maybe a couple of days ago now i think um this is really off the back of uh, Nigel Farage's uh, account being closed by Coots. Um, it appears that plenty of bookmakers are struggling to retain bank accounts. What do we know? Yeah, two uh, industry stories on the front of uh, the Racing Post today. Are both of them quite interesting. As you say, this one is in the wake of the Nigel Farage case and uh, his closure, uh, the closure of his bank account by Coots. Of course, uh, Nat West CEO Alison Rose resigned yesterday after it was revealed that she'd, she'd breached uh, data protection rules by briefing a, a BBC journalist. And Bill Barber reports on the front of the Racing Post today that uh, numerous bookmakers have revealed they've had accounts closed by NatWest. Um, one of the main issues seems to be, not surprisingly, that bookmakers uh, deal often in, in large sums of cash. Um, the, uh, the Graham Thorpe, no, not that one, uh, is a bookmaker who's uh, quoted by Bill Barber. He said he's had 11 accounts closed, uh, has banked with NatWest for nearly 40 years. Um, he had his personal account closed without being informed, then a, a, a letter saying uh, that they were bringing their business with him to a close. Uh, he said, to me, they appear to be hiding behind money laundering and terrorism legislation in order to wield their commercial hammer and knock you out if you were doing something they regard as unprofitable or doesn't suit them. As you say, this has been condemned. The chair of the National Association of Bookmakers Simon Walmsley uh, told Bill Barber that it was a disgrace. Um, Maverick Tory MP Phil Davis he described it as outrageous and he said he would cover the issue with his wife Esther McVeigh on their GB News programme this Saturday. And I suppose the, um, the, the interesting thing with this particular story, Tom, is that quote of, from Graham Thorpe, hiding behind... Uh, other reasons for closing your account, hiding behind money laundering and terrorism legislation, just simply because having your business uh, doesn't suit them. And there's a parallel there with another story that we might discuss with regard to affordability checks. But um, it's, I mean, it's, it's up to any uh, business, whether they choose 
to uh, engage you as a customer or not, but they could at least uh, be honest as to why they're doing it. It's, it I, I personally have no great liking or sympathy for uh, Nigel Farage, but in this case, um, it seems as though that Coots weren't honest with him to start off with as to why they were closing his account. That's obviously an unsatisfactory state of affairs, whoever you might be. And affordability checks, as you, as you mentioned there, what's the what's the latest here? Yeah, this is uh, the uh, proposals put out to public consultation by the Gambling Commission yesterday, under which uh, punters could face having to undergo affordability checks as often as twice a year. This is... Uh, the other piece I, I mentioned on the front of the trade paper written by uh, James Stevens. We're familiar with these proposals. Um, any customer with a, a net loss of a thousand quid over 24 hours or 2000 over 90 days could be forced to undergo an enhanced check of their finances as often as every six months. The, the trigger falls to 500 quid and a thousand for the under 25s. And, uh, Interestingly, that those periods are looked at in isolation. We knew that too, uh, so that if you had a big win and then a loss, uh, the big win does not count. That you that the, your uh, your betting activity in that sense is not looked at in the round. The, the consultation uh, seeks public feedback, uh, so it's open for twelve weeks. And we've discussed this many times: the uh, the harm that will be inflicted on racing's finances if uh, these are allowed to uh, to go ahead. And so over the next 12 weeks, folks, you know what to do. You do indeed. I need a tip from you, please, Dave. That's all. We're going to the 8.15 race at Newbury tonight, Tom, and it's Lunar Landscape. A horse trained by Eve Johnson-Horton has had a couple of starts in handicaps, both over a mile, things haven't gone to plan, up to 10 here, and I think that will suit Charlie Bishop's mount, whom I take for a first career win here. 8.15 race at Newbury, selection number nine, Lunar Landscape. Dave, thanks very much. Have a, a lovely weekend, but there's still a podcast coming your way tomorrow. In fact, two, because Charlotte will be with you in the morning, and then, of course, the Saturday edition will land from 9pm tomorrow night. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.